everyone. Welcome to the Pathfinder podcast. Today I'm joined with Russell McPherson from the Precision Engineering and Manufacturing Center at ATU Sligo. Russell, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Ian. Delighted to be here. So for our audience listening, can you explain what the PEM Center does and give us a sense of your own background as well? No problem, Ian. Uh, so um so yeah, I'm based at the, the PEM Technology Gateway at ATU Sligo, and our gateway is part of a network of technology gateways across Ireland, and they're, they're funded by Enterprise Ireland, and each gateway is there to enable access for local enterprise to the expertise within what was the Institutes of Technology, but which really now all the all the Institutes of Technology are becoming technological universities. But the remit still stays the same. The technology gateways are there to really be that conduit for industry to access the expertise in what is now the university. Our background is built on the precision engineering uh, legacy that Sligo has. So Sligo is recognized nationally and internationally as a center for precision engineering excellence uh, and was the national tool-making training center. Uh, So a lot of precision engineering courses run within the the university. And that, that history is our specialism and specialism for each gateway uh, in the network really is linked to what the local institute essentially was good at so of the 16 gateways around the country we specialize in precision engineering and manufacturing the other 15 they have their own specialisms and if there's something that we can't do to help local industry then we can usually find that uh, for industry within the gateway network. And I know I've said a few times, local industry, it starts local, but we really do have a national remit. And I know I use the word industry, but that really covers your sole trader, your entrepreneur, your somebody who has an idea and then wants to turn the idea into a product or maybe even a service, uh, all the way up to your multinationals. So we, we, we're there to help all enterprise, essentially. And then in terms of my background, Ian, it's quite varied, um, I think. You know, I, I tend to think I've got a bit of a varied background. So I, I started, when I left school, I did an apprenticeship in instrumentation and process control in a, a large papermaking company. That was very interesting. Uh, you know, you were dealing with small, uh, small instrumentation, very delicate instruments, measuring process parameters on enormous machines. Absolutely enormous machines, a few hundred meters long, up to 10 meters wide, running at maybe 300 meters a minute, uh, producing different types of paper. Uh, so it was very interesting. But then I, I'd, once I finished my apprenticeship, I went off to university. I was fortunate enough to be sponsored by the papermaking company. Uh, and I went and did uh, an undergraduate degree, a master's degree in electrical and electronic engineering. That's really my, I guess, my my specialism, my, my, my profession would be electrical electronic biased. So I did that for five years. And then after that, in around, I think it was 99, uh, I was asked to do, a, I had the opportunity to do a PhD, which I did. I carried on my undergraduate studies um, and I did that. And that was in the application of artificial intelligence to optimize electromagnetic structures. Bit of a mouthful, but that was back in the, back before AI really became as 
prevalent as it is nowadays. You can't turn anywhere without you're seeing some sort of AI, deep learning, machine learning reference. But back then, which really isn't all that long ago, really, you know, I did my coding in Fortran. I sent my code away to a supercomputer um, in the south of England. It compiled and ran overnight, and I got my results in the morning. It's a bit different now. You can almost do what I was doing on your phone. Now it's all, you know, all the computing is sort of tucked away in data centers. So that's the, the academic side uh, after the apprenticeship. Then um, after the after the PhD, I actually went to work for a company called Kinetic. Most people will never have heard of that. They do a lot of R&D for the UK government when I was working on special types of hybrid vehicles. And a lot of the technology that uh, I would have been working on Again, if you drive an electric or a hybrid vehicle, a lot of the technology is in there. The motors we were looking at, the battery systems, energy management, optimization. So that was fascinating work. I actually used some of my academic training, if you like. And then after a a couple of years there, I actually uh, took a bit of a sideways step back into manufacturing for a large company called uh, GlaxoSmithKline. So most people know that as GSK, large pharmaceutical company. And I went to work in one of their large manufacturing sites for consumer products where I was doing continuous improvement type work. And it was there that I really uh, got into the the Lean and the Six Sigma. And I know that's what we're going to be talking about today. And in GSK, I moved around a lot between manufacturing, R&D, and back to manufacturing. I had the opportunity to work in different countries, many different projects, many different teams, and it was great. And I did about 17 years in GSK. And then I took a slightly different career direction now. So I'm exploring different opportunities and really, really enjoying uh, managing the technology gateway at ATU Sligo. That's fascinating. I I knew you started working in the paper industry. I didn't realize it was during an apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And actually, I won't go into why I ended up as an apprenticeship, but it was probably the thing that set me on the course uh, that I, I, I've navigated today. Um, and it's something that I'm extremely proud that I did. It has given me a particular perspective on things when I look back. And it's and that's that old saying as well. It's given me a trade that I've managed to turn and apply in many different situations and really kept me sort of, I'm going to say, grounded at the time if I can put it that way. Apprenticeships nowadays have changed a lot and a lot for the better. And, you know, they are a superb way to build your your skills, your capabilities, and then you can move on to different things afterwards. So yeah, I'm a big fan of apprenticeships. And if I, if I hadn't done my apprenticeship, Ian, I would never have gone to college day release. Yeah. So I went to college one day a week. People may remember you used to do that kind of thing. So I went to college one day a week and it was there that my passion for learning was reignited. And it was after completing the academic side of the apprenticeship, which was mandatory. You had no choice. If you didn't pass the academic side, you didn't pass your apprenticeship. It was after that, that I thought, you know what, I'm really enjoying this side of things. And that it was that that then enabled me to, to move on to university studies. Something I think that we're really missing in general is in more academic approaches is the pragmaticness that comes from more hands-on learning, such as apprenticeships. So then just to focus on your manufacturing background, because what we want to talk mostly about today is Lean Sigma and its role in manufacturing. Um, So Lean Sigma has been 
a huge part of manufacturing in Ireland for the last number of decades now, particularly with the large multinationals such as GSK. There remains a lot of the SME companies in the country that haven't really adopted this approach yet. So can you explain what Lean Sigma is in manufacturing and how it delivers business value? Well, that's a very good question. I'm going to do my best to answer it as best as I can. I take personally, I'm going to give you my my interpretation of it. Um, I take quite a simplistic approach to Lean Sigma. Right? And so it's, the, it's a synergy of two different methodologies. So you have lean manufacturing, and that's got its own pedigree, if you like, and that could be the subject of someone else's podcast, perhaps. Uh, but you've got lean manufacturing, and then you have Six Sigma. And then the two came together, and we now have Lean Sigma. And I always just carry that lean is about eliminating waste, any type of waste. And that's the that's the overarching philosophy of lean and Six Sigma. So the Sigma part is about reducing, fundamentally about reducing variability in processes. And those things together... And we'll get into, you know, well, okay, then reduce waste. What does that mean, Russell? Reduce variability. What does that mean? But those two things together, they allow you to improve the quality of whatever you're manufacturing and essentially reduce cycle time. Okay. So, and fundamentally, those things add value in the eyes of the customer. It's all about value in the eyes of the customer. So we reduce waste. We reduce variation. Variation leads to defects, leads to poor quality. And that ultimately manifests in value for the customer. So that's how I look at it, Ian. Uh, now, somebody, you know, other people may say, well, Russell, you've missed out all of this. You've missed out all of that. But when you're in a manufacturing plant, and it doesn't matter the size of the plant, it doesn't matter what you're doing, be a small plant, it could be a multinational, those things hold true. You just want to get rid of waste and you want to reduce variation because that's what stops you adding value and slows you down. So when you're talking about uh, reducing variation, particularly there, and my understanding of Lean Sigma is, so the Sigma is the statistical analysis of the variance for which you need data around your manufacturing process. But for a small manufacturing facility, what types of data should they be looking at to be able to perform these types of statistical analysis? Do they need a lot of data? And where in their manufacturing process does it tend to be easy to collect that information? Another great question. For the two philosophies, for Lean and Sigma, data is very important. And qualitative data, I, again, these are quite simplistic generalization for this kind of helps me deploy the methodology. Qualitative data has more strength in Lean, and I'll, I'll maybe give an example of that. And then as you say, Ian, in the Sigma side of things, that can be a bit more stats-driven, right, can be, then you're looking for more of that quantitative data. Now, you raise a very good point. If I may, does that mean I need to instrument everything up and I need to be harvesting data at high sample rates? Absolutely not. No, 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 no. So, and in fact, in my experience, the best way to start gathering data is almost to write it down, right? So you you just take your, your pen, your paper, you go to the, whatever process you're looking at, and you start writing down the data you're interested in, yeah? Now, if that data is automatically captured, fair enough, right? But you can you can start just by going and observing and writing down data. 
And actually going to look at stuff is one of the most important things to do with both philosophies. But I'll just refer to it all now as just Lean Sigma. We've kind of touched on the two things. So going and having a look, right? People would talk about putting your waist glasses on or going on a Gemba would be the buzzword for it. You go, you have a look, you observe, and you record. And then you asked about, well, how much data do I need? So one thing I always remember from my, my Lean Sigma training back in the day was the central limit theorem. Right, and we're not going to get into it. I'm going to try and avoid sort of statsy talk, but I'm looking for 30 data points. Right, if I can get to 30 data points on something, I'm reasonably confident I can move forward. Yeah, uh, and I'll leave the listeners to go and look up uh, why 30 and why the central limit theorem. But that's a, a rule of thumb. It's a heuristic that you can carry through deploying a sort of Six Sigma philosophy. And you're right, Ian, it, it is linked to, I mean, Six Sigma gets its name from the number of standard deviations you'd like to get between your process average, sort of the average of whatever you're making, anything we're measuring, and either your upper or lower specification limits. And there'll be people out there saying, well, what about the 1.5 sigma shift on the mean, Russell? So, well, I'll leave that to other people to go and read about. That's the the main driver of the of Six Sigma is let's try and squeeze as many standard deviations as we can in between the mean and the specification limit. Because the more you get in, the less chance there is of you producing a defect. And if I don't produce defects, then that's all value to my customer and makes my business run a little bit smoother. So when implementing solutions, especially like Lean Sigma solutions tend to be require a lot of cross-department collaborations. And anyone who's ever tried to implement a solution that involves multiple departments has experienced a lot of, say, road blockages from either like conflicting personalities or conflicting KPIs within the within different departments. So can you give a sense from your experience then what are the non-technical obstacles that tend to be present themselves when adopting uh, Lean Sigma? And really what I'm trying to understand here is how can you from day one set up your project for success in balancing its role against the company's overall strategy? Again, these are great questions, Ian. And this one, right, this one is where it can all fall apart, right? Because there are, so from a technical perspective, right, the Lean Sigma has been around for, for long enough now that there are some excellent tools out there, excellent literature, fantastic books. You know, you can just buy a book and follow it, right? Uh, so the, the technical side of it, the statistics, the software packages that people have access to, that's a given, Right. In my experience, where it falls down, um, it's on the cultural side, right? And the the biggest part for the IC where things don't quite go according to plan is engagement and alignment. So I could come along and say, "Fantastic, we're going to embrace Lean Sigma." Away you go, everyone, and it will go nowhere, right? Because if I don't if I don't engage my workforce, however large or small that workforce is, if I don't show why we need to be doing this, I'm never going to get people on the bus. So quite a lot of investment has to go on engaging the workforce. And that investment is really time. 
and that would be, for example, senior management, um, engaging with the workforce at all levels, all levels, and that's extremely important to show why we have to go on this journey. And it can't be done by people sitting in offices. I mean, I said there, you know, you go out, you have a look, you observe the waste, you go and take measurements and you can plot your charts, all that sort of stuff. You have to get out and around, engage staff, talk about waste, talk about variation, talk about how that impacts the business, how it impacts the customer, and then what everybody needs to do to address it. So on, they're not, so on that, so engagement, absolutely key. Another key thing I see in terms of doesn't work out right, correct is people often think, ah, well, I'll put a project manager in place and then I'll get my delivery. I refer to this as the curse of the project manager. So I come along, let's say I, I'm nominated as the project manager. I'm lucky enough to get that role. What happens very often is the team that I'm now, I'm not managing the team. Remember, these are all people who might be reporting into different functions, but I'm coming, I'm managing a project. And so I you know, have to be able to influence and persuade people. But all the other people on the team think I'm doing all the work because I'm the project manager. It's my responsibility to deliver everything. And that's not really how it works. But in manufacturing, that's what an awful lot of people think how it works say, oh, I come up with some, you know, the team comes up with ideas. I run into a little bit of a barrier. Uh, don't worry, the project manager, they'll deliver that. The analogy I use is building a house. So, and it's something that people in Ireland particularly do a lot of, build their own house, right? And I might project manage building my own house, but I don't do the wiring. I don't do the plastering. I don't lay the blocks. Yeah. I have experts that do that but I manage the delivery, yeah? And when it goes, so let's imagine the electrician doesn't turn up that day or they say, well, Russell, it's too difficult. I don't know what to do. I don't all of a sudden do all the electrical work, but I help the electrician get the job done. And I find that is a trap that uh, a lot of people fall into, that when things get tricky, it falls back on the project manager to actually do the job. And they don't know how to, so then the project falls apart. So that's, you know, the engagement, the curse of the project manager. That's, you know, there are a couple of things. And I'll probably just mention one more. You have to let people know how things are going. You have to let people know how things are going. And that includes when things aren't going well. And, you know, so it, it's, it's very, very important because I need to know what I can do to make things better. And if you don't let me know that it's not going so well, I'm not in it with you. Yeah, I'm not in it with you. So it's that alignment uh, within the business. Um, there's no point, for example, senior management sitting there with loads of financial pressure, for example, and not making the workforce aware of that. In my experience, it, it can backfire sometimes. And there's always a judgment call. It's a balance. But transparency at the end of the day tends to win out. I think there's, that's a really key point is alignment um, because what I've noticed in the past and I've heard from numerous people as well is when they feel like a project that they're working on, which is doing well and is delivering real value to their business or to their employer, ends up not getting the resources that it needs, ends up being canned or whatever. 
and it causes a lot of tensions between people. And ultimately, the real reason was that even though it was delivering a lot of business value and it was a very obvious move to make, it didn't line up with the company's overall strategy. Oh, yeah. At that time. Absolutely. And I mean, it's and projects always start aligned. Right. Otherwise, they would never really have got the goal. Yeah. So, uh, but then they can very quickly turn into something else. Right. And, you know, governance structures come into play. And absolutely critical skill is prioritization because not enough things get stopped or phased onto a longer timeline. A lot of things is that it's almost like you give, you give a busy, if you want something done, you give it to a busy person right? It's that philosophy. Well, I'm going to ask people to do more and more and more, but then senior management or the line management don't prioritize what people are working on. And you have to prioritize. You have to say, this is more important than that. Uh, and there are some some very effective tools out there within both, you know, within Lead and Sigma that can, that can help. Some very effective tools. And a very simple one is just the value that the project delivers you know, it could be a simple prioritization but a lot of a lot of a lot of teams actually find it difficult to prioritize because at some some stage you have to say no and people generally don't like to say no because they can think hmm, what's that how will that look on me yeah will i now look like i can't do my job or but actually you are doing your job by saying no because you're saying well yes i can get this done but what don't you want me to do? Yeah, and you, you you have to be able to have those conversations. And you know, one of the classic things I see that drives misalignment or non-alignment, I should say, is objectives of a company that are corporate objectives that are handed to people, let's say, on the shop floor, and it's essentially a different language. Yeah. So a corporate set of objectives could be something like, oh, let's say, increase earnings per share or, you know, reduce a deficit. Now, if I'm in a manufacturing plant, for example, I'm running a production line as a supervisor or I'm on the line as an operator, what does that actually mean to me? If I'm if I'm running a production line, what does it mean I have to do to increase earnings per share? Right. The language I need it in is Russell produced this many units in a shift, for example, right? And I need those targets. And then if I do that, if I hit those targets, that means my part of the operation will be making its contribution to the corporate objective. So the the objectives of the company need to be translated at different layers. So I know what I need to do to move the needle. And that's one of the biggest drivers of, of non-alignment that, that I see is, you know, we just have corporate objectives handed to someone as like, well, what do I do with that? I think it's interesting that we started off talking about Lean Sigma manufacturing and we've kind of drifted into overall management of operations, which is exactly what the tools were developed for really, weren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, within Lean Sigma, you, there's a very strong process, overall process called DMAIC, define, measure, analyze, improve, control, a very robust process that can be followed for 
many different situations. But that, that philosophy then you, you apply to your lean, you're reducing waste overall, and your Six Sigma, you're reducing variation. And it's all about making sure that whatever you're doing in your manufacturing operations, you're doing to add value in the eyes of the customer. Now, if you're doing that, then you're you're on the right journey. So then one last question before we go, just to give our, our audience a sense of what they need to start doing today in order to start putting these things in place. What are the resources that companies typically need to have in place to in order to effectively become a Lean Sigma operating business? Great question. And I would recommend you, you look at what you already have. So very often, oh, well, we have to employ new people. Not really, yeah, because it's very important in Lean Sigma to have people from your operations as part of the solution. You look at what you already have. Training, very important, but not something to be overdone. You just need to impart an understanding of the philosophies uh, and some of the, I'm going to say the simpler tools, because you can very quickly get lost in some of the tools, particularly on the Six Sigma side. If you get somebody who's interested in numbers and you point them towards the Statsy side, you can quite quickly go down a bit of a, a bit, bit down, down a bit of a hole. But you look at what you have in terms of people, and you you find the engaged people, people who are you know have some enthusiasm for it, are motivated. You give a bit of training, and then then it's all about delivery and the way i look at it ian is you build momentum you build momentum you have to build some delivery early and that happens by doing small projects all too often i see projects that are going to boil the ocean i'm like well gee whiz how are you going to deliver that as your first project whereas if somebody comes along and says well my first project is to save a thousand euros by not throwing so much stuff on the floor fantastic fantastic get that one under your belt get five of them under your belt then the next project is right okay we know what we're doing now we're going to um, save five thousand euros by doing this project and some of the the most impactful projects i've seen are ones like that because when employees and teams can see delivery success breeds success and you kind of, in the beginning, you kind of look past the value of it. Say, well, we've delivered our first project. Now we've delivered our second. Now we've delivered our third. And you build that momentum. And then the confidence builds and the projects get bigger. And then before you know it, you've got more people engaged. If everyone's doing a project as part of a training program, for example, because uh, I've not mentioned, you know, the belt system in, in Lean Sigma, that's sort of project driven. Then if you have the whole workforce doing a range of small projects to large projects, the value starts to roll in. And if I give an example, let's say of a lean, a lean project that is um, sounds really simple, right? But one of the factories I used to work in, one of the projects was we just had somebody going around looking at the bins, just subjectively quantifying how much waste was in the bins. And you might think, well, what's the point of that? But you actually start to you then build an understanding of how much waste from different streams is going in the bin. And then you start to ask questions. Why are we producing so much waste? And then there's not a good answer. So then you put a project in place, say, right, okay, we're going to reduce that waste. My bins are now less full. So I have to take my bins away less often. But taking the bin away 
and then processing the waste is a whole other cost. Yeah. And very often, if you're, let's say, an operator on a line, you don't see that cost because you just see, well, I'm just putting one thing in the bin. But you don't then see the on cost of, well, it has to be taken away, processed. A lot of companies send nothing to landfill now. So there's all sorts of handling. So a lot of cost can be saved just by looking at waste. And then a very useful or impactful Six Sigma type project that uh, a lot of manufacturers would probably relate to is giving something away for nothing, right? So if you if you cut anything, if you fill anything, then there will be, to err on the side of caution, you, so for example, let's say I'm filling up bottles of shampoo. I'm going to use shampoo as an example. I have to put in a little bit extra to make sure the customer gets what the label says they're going to get because of the variability in my filling machine. But if I can reduce that variability to the absolute minimum, I'm giving away no more than I have to, to be compliant with what's on the label. Now, if you fill a lot of shampoo bottles, that little bit of overfill that you're giving away with every bottle soon adds up. Yeah. And that's something that you get no extra money for. Yeah. And those type of projects need nothing more than pen, paper, people walking around, and then a desire to change. So yeah, definitely a a bit of a long answer to that one, Ian, but definitely keeping it simple. I mean, we all know, we might not like to admit it, that the whole world runs on Excel. Don't be scared of Excel to do a little bit of your your, 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 uh, early stats analysis. Don't jump straight into really complicated uh, stats packages unless you've got people who you know, can use them effectively. That'll all happen later. And don't be dazzled by AI and machine learning in the in the beginning. Again, that will follow. But yeah, start off simple, build that momentum, get some delivery under your belt, and then it'll all start to snowball from there. Great. Thanks, Russell. That's been a very insightful discussion. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ian. Great to talk about it. I've probably missed loads of things about Lean Sigma, and it's a, it's a vast subject delighted i was able to have the conversation with you it's something i i enjoy talking about and that is it for this week's pathfinder podcast i'd like to thank our guest russell mcpherson the gateway manager from pem center at atu sligo for talking to us today about the use of data in lean manufacturing mm-hmm.